0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're talking to the three shortlisted authors in this year's Desmond Elliott Prize. The Desmond Elliott, which, full disclosure, I'm chairing this year, is the country's most prestigious prize for first novels, and this year it celebrates its 10th anniversary. Named for the flamboyant late literary agent, a man who always travelled by Concord and regarded Fortnum's as his local corner shop, It gives support to writers for whom Concord and Fortnum's often seem far away. Seemingly more and more first novels are published every year in the UK, but the sheer volume sees most of them rise without trace, and even talented writers can go unnoticed. This prize, for at least a few, helps make a difference. The three first-rate books on our shortlist are Harmless Like You by Rowan Hiseu Buchanan, Kit de My Name is Leon, and Golden Hill by Francis Spufford. This week I spoke to each of the authors in turn, ahead of the winner announcement next Wednesday the 21st. You can learn more about their books and the prize on desmondelliotprize.org. Rowan Hisayo Buchanan's first novel, Harmless Like You, tells the story of an artist called Yuki, or at least the process of her living in New York in the 1970s and 80s and becoming a woman and an artist. It's a sort of buildings from that point of view, but it also has another strand – which is the story of many, many years later, Yuki's son, Jay, whom she left when he was two years old, coming to Berlin to find her. Rowan, can I start by asking you how this particular structure of the novel came together? Because it seems to me it's one of those stories where you get to know this character very, very well as a young woman from the inside, and then suddenly we re-encounter her as a much older woman, and she's almost a sort of stranger. You're coming at her from a totally different angle.
1: Okay, so I knew from the very beginning that she would grow up to leave her son, And I didn't know why when I started writing, but I knew that that was the case. And so we this is not a spoiler. It's in the prologue. Um, I knew that I would have to tell part of it from his perspective because I don't think you could properly understand the consequences if it continued to be through her eyes. But because she's a very internal person who struggles to make connections with people, you see that, I hope, from her point of view, and then the way that Perception shifts. I hope is interesting. What
0: was what was the donning? Was Yuki the sort of character who arrived first? I mean, did you sort of know it was about a woman who abandoned her child, or did you know she was going to be an artist? What was
1: so just before I started writing this novel, I had been working on something else, and it's that's not a novel, but my mother, who I'm very close to, um, got. Ill, and what happened was that she didn't know like who she was or where she was, and her memories seemed to have vanished, basically. Um, was this
0: a sort of abrupt It was very thing? abrupt. It
1: was sort of one morning. My brother made her a bagel, and she kept asking where the bagel came from, and he would tell her, and then she would forget. And I wasn't living in the same place as her at the time. And so... I couldn't help, and I also didn't want to bother my family. So I was pretty much just cancelled everything I was supposed to be doing and sat at home, not writing the previous novel or this novel, but freaking out and thinking, who would I be without this person? Yet at the same time, I knew that there was so much in life she'd wanted to do that wasn't taking care of me, that wasn't the thing she ended up doing. So I knew there was sort of a version of a universe where she did leave, and that was maybe where the germ of the novel came from. I would say that the protagonist is not my mother. She is a very different person, but that was where it started.
0: And can I ask you about the title, which it appears in the book, of course, but why did you give it that title? What do you what do you mean by it?
1: Well, I think with a two-stranded novel, you try to find a title that fits both characters. And separate from where it is plot-wise, I think one of the things I was very interested in is how... In the world, like on a tiny personal level, but even on a governmental level, often the times we hurt people most are when we feel weakest and most scared and least powerful. And there is quite a lot of hurt that happens in this book, but I believe that none of it comes from a place of evil. If anything, it comes from a place of powerlessness. And the word harmless particularly interested me because it should be a compliment. If someone called you harmful, you would that would be bad. So the opposite should be good. But it's not, we, nobody likes to be called harmless. We sort of like to think that we could hurt you, but we're not doing it. And so, so all of those ideas were floating bit. around. And I thought, yes, this is the title.
0: <laughs> one of the, I mean, you talk about hurt, voluntary and involuntary and harm. I mean, one of the things that struck me as most sort of daring and sort of edgy in the book is that it does portray a relationship that could be called abusive. And yet within that, you know, that relationship in some ways is, I don't want to say the making of her, but it's she seems in some ways also to get more out of it than a relationship that's much kinder.
1: Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, I guess when I was writing that relationship, that was one of the sections I probably did the most, I don't know if research is the right word, but questioning of the way I'd written it, because I, I know that there are a lot of women who have been in or who are in abusive relationships, and they aren't stupid they aren't stupid women, they're intelligent women. And so I started thinking about why they were there and reading narratives and talking to people. And that was one of the things that I tried to bring to it is what she thinks she's getting out of it. And I don't want to say that she's wrong, because I think to write a character, well, you have to sort of believe in what they believe partially. And I would definitely say it shapes and changes her, whether I would say it was worth it or there's something I would recommend to anybody is that's not I don't no, I'm not, not pro that at all
0: you know it's a morally complex and tricky section also I mean you're too young to remember the New York of the time in which it's set did you have a fantastic amount of research to do that because uh-huh. it's very very you know alive
1: I realized I just said the main character isn't my mother and she isn't my mother, but my mother grew up in New York at that time, she's the same age as the protagonist, and I grew up with all of these stories, and the way family stories are, you don't quite know the order that they come in, you know, and so when I was talking to her, I was like, wait, was that the 60s or the 70s? And so I felt like I had a way into it where I wouldn't have had the same instinct with sort of the Tudors, would have felt much more foreign to me, obviously. So that was sort of the way in. But then as I was writing it, I found myself looking at photographs, looking at sort of checking things like when did Japanese restaurants get to New York? When did they become common in New York? Sort of tiny details like the fact that macaroni was around in diners, but penne wasn't, even though I think of penne as being everywhere. Just sort of fact checking again and again as you went. So I think maybe I went in with like, too much confidence and then I ended up doing research as I went.
0: I should also ask just because it seemed to me a sort of brilliantly strange touch, the bald cat. Why does your novel have a bald cat in it?
1: Okay there are probably two reasons. One is that the bald cat is a therapy cat that belongs to Yuki's son Jay and I really wanted him to give him something he could love and care for because he really struggles to love and care for some of the humans in his life and The bullcat specifically came from the fact that I was living in America at the time, and I was had been taken to a Walmart for either the first or second time in my life, and it was very, very big. And I got lost from the person who had driven me there. And so I was sort of wandering up and down the aisles of this surreally large place. And I turned a corner and there was this very there was this man, he was quite a large man, and he was holding this tiny dog, this tiny sort of white, fluffy, but kind of patchily-haired dog in a bright yellow jacket that said, therapy animal. And I just thought, what? What is this? Where am I? And I you know, I found my friends, I got taken home. And I ended up doing all this research, and therapy animals are a real thing. They're sort of to help people cope with mood disorders, or... And so you can take them on planes. And so you can take them on Mars, planes, and I, it actually made a lot of sense. that You know, a lot of people who... Pets aren't therapy animals, do have form some form of therapy for them. And it, it just became something I really wanted to put in the book.
0: Well, it's wonderful. That's the terrific harmless like you, Rowan Hisayo Buchanan. Thank you very much indeed.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: Kit Deval's first book, My Name is Leon, tells a poignant and touching story of a nine-year-old mixed-race boy called Leon who finds his world turned upside down when his mother, who suffers mental health and addiction issues, is separated from him and his young, younger brother and it describes his search to find some sort of family and belonging in an often hostile world in London of the 1980s. Kit, can you tell me a little start with about the genesis of this book? What made you think it's time to write a novel? I mean, are you someone who has a bottom drawer full of previous attempts at writing novels? Was it something you've been working on for years, or how did it come about?
2: Well, I'm not one of those people that sort of wanted to be a writer at five and, you know, had little exercise books of sweet tales. I never thought about writing until I was about uh, 41, 42. And I adopted a little boy who was very ill. So I stopped work and I was at home, bored out of my fucking brain. And because I was a great reader, I thought I'd have a go. I mean, literally no more than that. And the first couple of books that I wrote were appalling. One was about a Norwegian gangster. One was about, I can't remember. Anyway, they weren't great. Although I thought they were obviously works of genius at the time, but looking back, they weren't very good. And so this actually is my third novel. And I had to, like all people do, write something close to my heart. I think if you write a good book and you write close to your heart, it works on some level. And so I wrote about what I know in the world I'd worked in for many years. I left school at 16 did lots of work around a sort of legal, you know, the legal area. At 23, I started working for the CPS, and then I started in 1985. I worked for criminal defence lawyers who also did some family law because the two often go together. And I was, you know, completely unqualified dog's body that worked her way up to having her own caseload. So no university, no further education as such. But I did know that world really well. And so in writing about Leon, I wrote not only what I know, but I actually wrote what I thought a lot of people knew about that world. And I've been really surprised that people have said to me, for example, you know, all the book tours I do, people say that wouldn't happen now that Leon would be separated from his mother. And absolutely, Leon would be separated from his mother now. And, I, you know, it, it still surprises me that people don't know more about the thirty-seven or well, 43,000 children in care.
0: And what was it that made you want to set the book in the 80s as, a, as opposed to now, if you like?
2: Basically cowardice in that uh, I didn't want him to have a mobile phone. And also, I'm 57. In 1981, I was 21. I remember it very, very well. It was such an interesting time politically and socially in that we had the absolute spectacle, worldwide spectacle, that that was the royal wedding and the Britain's obsession with that and all things royal. And six weeks before about, I think, think about six weeks before we had some of the worst race riots the UK had ever seen with a policeman being murdered, you know, half of the country saying, You know, I'm disenfranchised, I hate it, and the rest of the country saying, isn't it fantastic, we've got a royal wedding. And all the other things that were going on, Bobby Sands, the assassination attempt on the Pope, it was just a really interesting time to be alive. So I set it in a time that I remember, basically.
0: And can you say how you found the sort of the style? Because it's told. And it seems to me one of its great virtues is that it's told in a style of some sort of apparent simplicity. You know, we're in Leon's head. You know, there are things that adult readers can see that Leon isn't aware of. And yeah, how did you arrive at that style? Were there models you were influenced by?
2: I really wish I could tell you I had a plan or that I rejected other styles before I chose that one. I didn't. It was absolutely. I don't know. I, I dare say don't say natural but it was just obvious I suppose I never thought of doing it or never even tried to do a sentence in any other way I didn't want to be first person I didn't want to say I am Leon but once I decided not to write it in the first person the the sort of style was completely obvious to me I, I didn't have a plan it's not I didn't feel like it was an authorial decision it just really happened that way.
0: One of the things that's, I think, quite surprising to me, at least, and to some reason, you know, one expects a book like this one very often that the reflex will be to reach for everything to be dark and difficult and for Leon to be... But, you know, Leon, at the heart of this book, is a sweetness. You know, he's essentially... He's a very good boy. You know, he wants to be good. And the people around him find ways of being good. You know, it's a, there's a lot of kindness in this book.
2: Yes, absolutely. And for me, again, try my main driving most of the thing, no, not in most, in everything that I write is to be authentic and true. And it's it was far more important for me to reflect the reality of of what it is to be working class or underclass or immigrant or black or whatever it is in foster care than to make some huge political statement about how terrible it all is. And of course, it is terrible. But life isn't very rarely. One series of uh, crying and, and bawling after another. There is light and there is goodness and there's kindness. And there's also a great deal of humour, even in the worst circumstances. And I found that in lots of the, you know, the work that I've done, I've visited many, many men in prison who are doing 20 years or 18 years and 16 years, and they can still laugh about things and make a joke and be kind. And this, I really, really, it was very important to me to reflect the light, if you like, that there is, even in the darkest and, and bleakest situations. And also there's something,
0: I just wanted to read, one of the themes of the novel, you know, you, is this idea of the allotment he goes to, this place, obviously allotments are much on everyone's minds now with Mr Corbyn's success. You know, the allotment is this sort of, I mean, it's not quite a sanctuary, but it wants to be. You know, I mean, how do you see it as functioning in the in the novel
2: Again, I was trying to be true to to what happens in, in the area that I lived at the time in Hansworth. The allotments, particularly for immigrants, are very, very important places. It's where, in the 50s and 60s, people from the West Indies and from Asia could grow their own food and, and feel they were having some sort of communion with the land. And so if Leon was ever going to meet different people people from a different community that's where he would write them so again it was my attempt at trying to be authentic as to what these men mr devlin and tufty and their friends would be doing where would he meet them where it was safe to meet them and it was the allotment and i, ha- I had an allotment a few years ago and i, I do also remember the fascism of the allotment where it has to be straight, (laughs) and, you know, I don't know if you've ever had an allotment, but...
0: I do have one, yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly, so you know about keeping your paths clean and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I did want to get... It is quite safe. It's not a totally safe place for him, because, of course, Mr Devlin could have been a paedophile. Mr Devlin could have been a dangerous man. It just so happens he wasn't. But it is certainly, for Leon, a kind of a place where he feels peace. And he also feels he's going to have this little halfway house where he can raise his brother. So it does, it does represent to him a sort of paradise.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book. Kate Duval, thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Francis Spufford's first novel, Golden Hill, begins with a man stepping off a ship onto lower Manhattan in the middle of the 18th century. Mr Smith has a bill of credit for a £1,000, then an unimaginable amount, and a mysterious mission. Is he a spy, is he a saboteur? Is he a conman? The story has been described as the best 18th century novel since the 18th century, which is high praise and well-deserved. Now, Francis, welcome to the podcast. I wanted to ask you to start with, this isn't your first rodeo as an author. You've written several books, some of them non-fiction books, some of them with, I'm thinking particularly of Red Plenty, with a lot of the sort of literary techniques of fiction. What was it that prompted you to hop for the first time fully across that fence into fiction proper i think i've been
3: flirting with it for a, for a long time and i've i've been kind of lingering wistfully just on the other side of the boundary between between fiction and non-fiction i mean i i am a strong believer in the versatility of non-fiction and the wonderful things you can you can do with it but as a reader it has to be said. I do see novels as the kind of the, the the crown of the crown of the tree, and I finally dared to do it. I I had what I thought was a was a nonfictional idea, and then realised that the the core of my interest in it was was all to do with with storytelling, and realised that that now was the moment to dare.
0: It's interesting you say it started with this nonfictional idea. One of the, I mean, it's a cliché to say of any book that you know the city is a character in it, but certainly. It's dense with that sense of New York in an age when what's now I don't know White Plains or Yonkers was then the sort of vast dark terrifying forest full of Native Americans, you know, and that there was a sort of almost kind of heart of darknessy quality that these are a little village on the lower tip of Manhattan. I mean, how much was it important in the research you've obviously done for your for your Manhattan to be as it were discovered rather than imagined?
3: Very important in some ways the city came first and it was the the city that was sitting in my mind when I realized that it was that it was story I wanted to use to to explore it I think the place was was pretty much my starting point and and if the tiny New York of 1746 isn't quite a character it's it's certainly a presence I was charmed and fascinated in my contrary way by the idea of of a new york which you could see was going to develop into the familiar metropolis but which reversed almost all of the the familiar qualities of it so it's tiny rather than huge it's exclusive rather than cosmopolitan it's it's suspicious rather than rather than rather than open and yet it if i've done it right it should be haunted by by the the pale phantoms of of the skyscrapers standing exactly where the little 18th century buildings were standing in the story.
0: So it has that sense of, though you're absolutely, you know, full of, you know, sometimes jokey, sometimes sometimes more serious sort of sense of the 18th century in idiom and in, in approach, and that you have this wonderful fun with that kind of picaresque, you know, fielding-esque, sort of narrative. But there's also, I hope it's not insulting to say, hovering it over quite a 21st century... Sensibility when it comes to ideas i mean not inscribed in the characters, but ideas of uh, you know race and sexual relationships, and you know the reader can can look down on it from that is that deliberate that's that is deliberate and i don 't think i don 't think that's that 's
3: insulting at all. Historical novels are contemporary novels, and they are always the result of of a conversation of some kind between what the present thinks is worth dwelling on and and what was there in the past. I mean, historical moments are incredibly various. Almost everything is in that, but I am not embarrassed that I have brought some 21st century urgencies to what was to be found in, in the village of New York. I'm hoping that But in terms of attitudes, it isn't all a one way street. It certainly, I hope it isn't just imposing 21st century enlightened views about about race and sex on the past, because I'm interested in the distance and the difference of the past. But I wanted the past to be, you know, transparent enough for us to get a kind of imaginative foothold in it. And that meant opening it in some familiar ways so you could Discover the difference, and in some cases, the darkness when you got there.
0: Yes, one of the things that I mean, I'm curious as to how you plotted it, because on the one hand, it's got quite a sort of linear narrative with these great sort of switchbacks. You know, it's it, it, it's sort of one thing happens and then another, and then these lovely dramatic reversals.
3: Let's be frank: the book is is set pieces held together with clockwork. So, um, <sighs> at least, at least I hope it
0: is. That's that's certainly one of its great pleasures. But you also have at the end, and I won't give any spoilers. A sort of twist, or you know, metatextual flip back that makes the reader want to go right back and read the whole thing again in a new light. Which, of course, readers, you know, writers
3: tend tend to want a reason for readers to do that. To do that, anyway. I was just being a bit more literal about it than than usual. It's certainly the trickiest thing I've written from from that point of view. But actually, that was partly to do with the kind of 18th century novel I wanted to be writing. It is mostly Fielding or Smollett. It's mostly the the picaresque adventures of a hapless, good-looking, yet fundamentally uncrushable young man as he he tours the 18th century world from, from gutter to palace. But I also wanted the kind of the dimension of 18th century writing which you see in in Stern. I wanted the, the Tristram Shandy-esque play with 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 writing as writing. And every now and again I wanted the kind of bustling, fielding-esque surface to dissolve and and reveal kind of stern-like abysses of uncertainty. I'm being quite cagey here about not giving away
0: my twist. Of course, no, it would spoil it for everyone if I did. The opening sentence is this sort of looping, wonderful, long, sort of serpentine thing that makes the reader think, oh God, is it all going to be like this? Because it goes on for about three quarters of a page. Was that a kind of joke to yourself or to the reader? It was. It was several things at, at once. It was a piece of
3: ridiculous exhibitionism about just how long you can stretch the, daft, the draft snake of a sentence and still have it, have it fundamentally make sense. It's a kind of intended as a piece of time travel in itself. Um, it's a quiet homage to the beginning of Stern's sentimental journey, where the protagonist gets himself to France within a sentence. It's there. It's there to provide a kind of sill you have to step over to get to get into the novel and it ought to be easier on the other side of, of of the kind of the threshold of the first sentence. I should say that it was twice as long in the first draft, but I thought I thought I want only ridiculous, not actually
0: ludicrous here. <laughs> a very finely judged balance. Francis Buffett, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks.